4: Hello and welcome to Mid Atlantic. I'm Royfield Brown who's in a rather nice autumnal London. Today I speak to Zaki Rashid from the Blue Planet Club about the politics of the ocean and how we can conserve it so that we have still have biodiversity and a planet for our children to enjoy and inherit. Recently, the oceans have become a focus of substantial global attention and with diverse appeals for transformation. Calls to transform ocean governance and how we treat this vital resource are now motivated by the need to secure the rights of marginalised coastal communities to boost ocean-based economic development and to reverse global biodiversity loss. Some 70% of the ocean is beyond national jurisdiction, and the freedom of the seas, Mare Liberum, is still the rule at play in these areas. For nearly three decades, the UN has been bringing together almost every country on Earth for a global climate summits called COPS, which stands for Conference of the Parties. In that time, climate change has gone from being something of a fringe issue to a global issue priority. The fate of the oceans will be topmost in the minds of the conference delegates at uh, COP26 next month. Zakia, welcome to Mid-Atlantic. How are you today?
6: I'm really good, thanks Raphil. Thanks for having me.
4: Everybody is now aware of the fact that we are destroying the planet through releasing of uh, kind of carbon emissions and we, we're polluting it with with plastic waste. And that's just two things. Um, when did we truly become aware of what we were doing to the oceans?
6: Gosh, years ago. I think there was an article published in an Australian or New Zealand newspaper, I think in the 1900s, early early on in the 1900s where... Someone proposed the, the, the fa- or posited the fact that, you know, fossil fuels, the burn, the, you know, the industry, the, the, the fossil fuel industry, would make the world hotter. And I, I can't remember the exact wording, but it's it's on the internet, ready for anyone to find. There has been a lot of posts recently about it, about the fact that we saw this coming from such a long, long time ago, right from the Industrial Revolution, and we are. We are where we are
4: now. So you are somebody who does a lot of work within the oceans. So before we come on to the questions of how we need to uh, conserve the oceans and where, which bit of the oceans having the greatest uh, kind of biodiversity loss, tell us about your journey into ecology and why you fell in love with the deep blue sea.
6: Well, that's two two questions, really, isn't it? I fell in love with the ocean. I think right from a child. I think it was. I always saw it as a uh, as another world, as a as an alien world. Just suppose it is, being land based creatures. Uh, and so I was always constantly fascinated by programs, anything to do with sharks, anything with blue water. I, I was right there. David Attenborough, any kind of wildlife program like this. I, w- I was always fascinated. And then growing up, I never imagined that it would be a part of my world until I I learned how to dive on my honeymoon. And, and I've, I haven't really been out of the water since. I got back into the ocean about five years ago. And, and then I realized exactly what an awful state It was in, you know, all the creatures that I I discovered all those years ago when I was first married suddenly were disappearing. The coral wasn't there. And, you know, why was this? And at the same time, my children were growing up. And then the Greta Thunberg strike, climate strikes, Fridays for Future strikes started to happen. And gosh, I was astounded by, first of all, I suppose, the audacity of all those students, you know, you know, when I was growing up, children didn't really have a voice. And that all of a sudden, there's these children who are deciding that they weren't going to go to school on a Friday afternoon, they were going to march, they were going to take to the streets and make everyone know how distressed they were about the climate situation, about the situation that they're going to inevitably inherit from our generation. And so I think as a mother, I think, was quite infuriated by the fact there are all these kids who should be at school walking the streets you know why are they out there they should be at school they should be safe but also I just thought you know what these students have a point they have a voice you know and if they want to be they are recognizing the fact that they have uh, a, a future a failing planet in their future then And they are vocalizing it in such a dramatic and quite an eloquent way, then surely we should invite them to have a seat at the table, surely they should have a voice, surely they should know exactly what they are dealing with, how to deal with it, how to mitigate any kind of negative action that humanity has put upon the planet. And so that's how Mother Ocean Blue was born. Really, was was an answer to my own desire to do good, my own desire to to help my beloved ocean, and also to support students. And they are just, this, you know, they were the age that my that my boys are now. So my boys are 16 and 14, and they are, are looking to to people like me and people of my age to set the world in in a in a way where they can take on board the immense challenges that they're faced with and actually help and support them in a positive way to move forward in a positive way and to not just heal but stop the damage that's the biggest biggest problem we need to switch off that tap so yeah that that's how i that's how i started with mother ocean blue and i've actually just in the last couple of weeks closed up my my last clients for my business that i've been running for 30, well nearly 30 years I've Been a designer and a brand consultant for for nearly 30 years and i've uh, just given that up so this is it this is what i need to do this is my vocation now
4: it's kind of interesting. You really talked about quite passionately about your children, but also uh, their peers, people like, like Greta, who are really at the forefront of protests and advocacy for ecology, not just the oceans. Why do you think it's you know this generation who are so at the forefront of, of advocating that we need to change our, our ways of being, otherwise we're going to destroy the planet?
6: Do you know actually, Ruffield? I don't think it is just this this generation. I feel like this has been bubbling and brewing for a really, really long time. I mean, uh, you must remember the the, the women of Greenham Common. And the, you know, the the, the anti-nuclear st- strikes and protests and people chaining themselves to trees and Swampy, who I think changed in, chained himself in the, this is a, a guy in the UK who chained himself to a tree and they, they, I think they literally chopped the tree down to get him out of there in the end. But it, what's different about it now is that the generations, it, the, the people are getting younger when once it was the the remit of the older generation i think to use their voices and to to speak up and and speak to the press to speak to parliament to speak to their mps actually students now have you know they're they're braver they have more that they're more aware of, of, of what's around them and I think you know the fact that social media has made the world so much smaller and more accessible has allowed them th- this opportunity this voice and and actually I think it's oh, how can I put it the the fact that children if you like um, and I don't like to call them children because that makes makes them sound younger and, and less vocal than they are but but actually that's how that generation when I was a When I was a kid, that's how we were seen. You know, we had nothing to say. We needed to learn more. But actually, these students, they they really have something to say. And they are, like I said, they're quite eloquent in their requests and their demands. And they're not just stamping their feet and, and throwing their teddy out of the window. These guys have got a serious, serious agenda. They've got a well thought out argument and proposals and ways forward. We, we certainly do need to listen to them. And I, I think now, if ever, is the right time to do it. I mean, it certainly should have been 10, 15, maybe even 20 years ago. But we're here, we need to start listening, and we need to include them.
3: The ocean must be deeply embedded in the negotiations of COP26 next November in Glasgow, contrary to the Paris Agreement that barely addresses it. The oceans are also experiencing a challenging biodiversity loss that potentially affects its structure, functioning and productivity. This is the reason why the ocean and marine systems deserve a stronger visibility in the agenda of COP15 of the Convention on Biological Diversity next October in Kuming, China. Portugal is pushing toward that objective, and I make an appeal to all maritime countries to cooperate to support a strong marine agenda on both the climate COP26 and the biodiversity COP15
4: let's focus in on your area of speciality which is the ocean give us the top three pressing concerns of how we're destroying the ocean right now
6: only three
4: <laughs> top three. everything
6: listen everything everything okay. fossil fossil fuels pollution gosh um yeah, I, I would say you know clim- climate change and and pollution. I would say would be the top two. I I don't know. There's there's a million things okay. coming into, uh, uh, into the let, zone.
4: Let me jump in. <laughs> let me try and play. Okay. Let me try and play devil's advocate for the time being. So we told that the Great Barrier Reef, just just for one example, is dying. So what? So, what if it's dying? we've We've begun in the history of the planet, we've had major cataclysms where whole swathes of creatures have died out. You know, we don't walk the the earth at, as, at the same time as dinosaurs. So what if the coral reef in Australia goes? why what does that matter to me sat in London
6: now? Well, if we didn't have reefs and reef systems, whether it's a coral reef or whether it's some sort of marine, environment that is it is let's put it this way so if we have healthy ocean systems if we have seagrass if we have seaweed kelp forests we have coral reefs and say uh, a, a system whereby like say for example in in new york there's the billion oyster program or initiative where they're trying to re-implant, if you like, oysters into the ocean around Manhattan and and Long Island or or around the Sound. The reason why we need these systems is because they've helped us to thrive. These systems have helped us and, and protected us. They fed us they 've allowed the ocean the multitude of ocean organisms to to thrive and develop and to breed and to grow and make our oceans healthy to feed us to, to protect us from flooding to protect us from wave, so current surges wave surges you know everything that we pick apart has a consequence. And yeah, if the, if the, you know, I've heard that argument so many times where people say, yeah, but so what? So, you know, there was this mass extinction and that mass extinction, the world is still going. But actually, when you look at it, actually, people haven't been on the planet for that long. You know, the next mass extinction could potentially be humanity. You know, and when you start to look at it that way, people think that maybe you're being too dramatic or it's too upsetting to deal with. I mean, it's certainly not something that I would repeat in, in front of a classroom full of students. But here right now, I don't think there's a person in this room who would uh, who would disagree with the fact that actually the, the, the first species, the big, big number that's going to go is humanity. Um, because if we destroy what's around us, what the things, the systems that have helped build humanity, if we break those down, then we we have nothing to stand on the ground that we're standing on is is not just unsteady it's not even there we're just floating in thin air so we have to we have to put back we have to give back and we have to like i said you know not just mitigate the um the damage that we've done but we need to like i said turn off that tap we need to just stop we need to change the way that we're doing things we are um, a species that are stuck in a, such a bad habit and, and all sorts of bad habits, you know, consumerism being one of them. But um, but I, I could go on. Do, do
4: you think? Do you think? Right. It's it's like the World Wildlife Fund has as its logo a panda, and you know, even the most cold-hearted of people can look at a panda and say that's a cute creature. I remember mm. as as a child, literally sat on my dad's knee watching wildlife programs. And the ones which we related to were the ones of the African, you know, savannah or the Serengeti. And there's a lion chasing after a, a zebra or some cute monkey or a great ape up, up in a tree. And, and as mammals, we, we could empathize. There was a certain level of connection with, with, with these creatures that, in many ways, are, are like us. Do you think one of the problems that we have with the deep blue sea and conserving it is that as you kind of said before it's an alien world you know it's it's Mm. a world of yes there are dolphins but it's a world of sharks it's a world of squid and we just go you know kind of kind of looking at those whereas we want to save the panda but the squid and the coral reef not so much
6: I, I feel that's changing now yes you're right absolutely cute fluffy stuff is it's endearing and it, it's easier for us to to relate to those animals because we can see them nurturing their young. We can see them, you know, we can see the mothers looking after their young. We can see the the, the pride of lions, sort of, you know, there's one, you know, that hunting together and doing things together, and that we can relate to that kind of uh, social aspect for those animals. And for the longest time, we've not seen that in the ocean just because we haven't looked for it. I mean, it wasn't that long ago that we were hunting whales and whales were being killed left, right and centre. I mean, the the whale populations were in in dire, dire straits. And then someone recorded whale song and that's what saved the whales. There were the protests, people were taken to the streets to, to march for the whales because that was a connection you know, people sing, we sing out of happiness, out of joy, we sing out of sorrow. And, you know, those those songs, we, something that we could relate to. So as soon as we find that kind of human connection, like we, we need to sort of anthropomorphize these, these creatures in some way to be able to feel compassion for them. Now, I'm seeing a lot more scientific work around ocean communities you know i think if you look now you will see things like you know a, a lot of scientific studies debunking the old uh, 7 second fish memory myth and and actually realizing that that there are certain shark communities that will work together to hunt and that actually sharks aren't the big monsters. Sometimes orca target great white sharks just to eat their liver and then they leave the rest of the shark. So there's a lot more that, you know, the ocean systems are incredibly complex and we're only just starting to scratch the surface. And it's just because it's not relatable to us because we're land-based creatures and we need to stick our heads, we need to get our faces in the water We need to see what's going on down there and just witness it for ourselves to actually find that connection within ourselves. And I think very often people people will very often say things like, oh, you know, I I, I feel so, so much calmer near the sea and I feel, you know, at peace near the sea, just the sound of the ocean waves. For me, it's being under the water, but it's that we need to find that connection.
4: I am recording an episode of the podcast Mid-Atlantic with the uh, great uh, Zakiya uh, Rashid, who has a fantastic club here on Clubhouse called uh, the Ocean Blue uh, Club. And I invite you all uh, to give her and follow and also to follow personally uh, follow her club. Now, what we are going to do is we're going to speak. I'm going to speak to her for another five or so minutes. And then I'm going to invite you up on the stage to to weigh in and to talk to her about how we can best conserve the oceans which are very obviously one of the building blocks of of our of our planet there's been a lot of talk a lot of research has gone on into microplastics and how they are changing the acidity but then also messing with ecology on a more kind of fundamental level so when we talk about the rubbish which we're dumping into the oceans it, it isn't just the rubbish it's the types of rubbish and you know single-use plastics etc but and we know that like straws are bad you know things that we only use once are bad and they're sent to landfill and then sometimes just are dumped into the ocean but could but for the layman could you just explain what plastics are actually doing to the oceans for us
6: I think the that the it's the microplastics pollution side of things is not separate but it, it's quite a way away from uh, ocean acidity. The ocean is getting more acidic because of the amount of carbon it's having to hold and and the fact that you know algae and plankton are kind of taking over in certain areas to create dead zones, which is a place where a place in the ocean where nitrogen Rules and where there is more nitrogen, there's less oxygen, and so therefore there's there's less animals that can thrive there. Microplastics are a problem because there's so many creatures that will that are you know that 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 feed in the ocean by just you know a gaping mouth, and they'll take all that plastic in, and they'll they basically they stuff up their bodies with it because they can't ingest it, they can't pass it, and so they. They, they they just die because of they've been poisoned by it. So we've got seabirds, aquatic seabirds. We've got fish that have been found with plastics in their bodies. So if another bigger fish comes along and eats that little fish, they're going to be taking on board that plastic. And you know, when when you look at that, um, you know, the trophic feeding levels and and the, the big bigger creatures that are feeding on all those small creatures, we what we found is that. Every single creature seems to have some sort of plastic inside it. you know microfibers from clothes, for example get all washed out into the to the ocean into the sea into rivers. but the other reason why the ocean is is becoming polluted is is not just microplastics and and pl- plastics in themselves it's you know ocean pollution that's adding to to the to the acidification of the ocean but Plastics are always going to be a problem because they just don't go anywhere. They just stay right where they are. They stay in their same form. I mean, I've, I've seen in the UK we have uh, an organisation called Surfers Against Sewage, and they have a campaign where you, you, you take a picture of something that has been in the ocean, you picked it up from the from the sea, and they've had packaging that they've they've people have saved and sent back to certain companies. They so, crisps or chip packets that are from the 1970s you know these things just don't go anywhere and if they're not going anywhere then they're going to go into the ocean and they, they break up into these teeny tiny little pieces and they like i said they're just ingested by so many different organisms in the sea and eventually they find themselves into human bodies i think that you know the recent study has said that even Babies in utero have microplastics in. You know, they found it in placentas. They found it actually in in, in babies. Just highly upsetting.
4: Another thing which is kind of highly upsetting is aquariums. And um, I remember being a little wee Royfield and going on a school trip to an aquarium. You know, uh, there are there I was with my packed lunch and with my uh, short trousers and looking at these weird and wonderful uh, creatures in this kind of murky blue setting behind this kind of pane of glass. It's kind of great for education, but where does education stop when we're looking at, let's say, aquariums, for example, and animal abuse start? Dolphins and like orcas, which are incredibly intelligent social creatures, they always die incredibly young in aquariums, don't they? We, we see them doing these wonderful tricks, but they never last more than five years and, and they die of depression and a lack of s- s- stimulation. So do we need to, as part of us being educated with what we're doing to the oceans, do we need to close aquariums as well?
6: I think no. No. And and I say I don't say that lightly because I have been known when I've uh, been on a little bit of a perhaps a little bit of a rant sometimes happens. Um, I have been known to call them fish prison because, you know, that, that you're 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 taking creatures that have a territory or a a traveling span, hundreds of miles, perhaps, you know, kilometers, and you're putting them in a teeny tiny tank and they've got nowhere else to go. I don't like those touch tanks. I don't like, you know, in, in the ocean as a diver, you know, if, if, a, if a creature comes near me and approaches me and it interacts with me, then if it's in my space, I can either push it away with my hand gently if it's in my space, because perhaps it's it's making me feel uncomfortable or it's not going to be good for that for that marine creature to to be that close to me but never would i advocate anyone touching uh, marine wildlife you know as, as some children are invited to in in these touch tanks if you like in these in in some aquariums i've seen aquariums with a loggerhead turtle just swimming around and around in circles, and these these creatures are huge. I've seen them in the wild, I have been approached by them, and it was an incredible experience, but it was, it was an experience that I had because that animal wanted to come close to me. Now, there is a little bit of a, there's a line somewhere where you are encroaching so drastically on that creature's freedom and uh, lifespan and mental health as well. And where is that? We know we need to learn more about those creatures to actually draw that line, to make that kind of distinction. When we're talking about megafauna in aquariums, talking whale sharks, orca, the killer whales, dolphins, porpoises, any of the the cetacean family, that for me is i I can't bear it i absolutely can't bear to see it because these creatures are not there for our entertainment they are not there to to do backflips and to to do things that they would never do in the wild we are not being educated by these things we are merely being entertained by and this is going to sound pretty serious this is you know harsh language on my part i agree but they are prisoners, and they are being forced to comply with their with their captors. You know, it's cruel beyond words. Oh, what can I tell you? The way that these creatures are captured is awful. It's brutal. If you look at accounts, perhaps on Instagram, the the Rico Barry Dolphin Project, you will learn how dolphins are captured in in a cove in Taiji, where certain members of the families are considered more attractive and more compliant. And so they're taken away and they're sold for thousands, sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. The rest of the pod are killed and they are killed in the most brutal manner. I can't even say it right now because it it, it is shocking. It's disturbing and it's incredibly upsetting. Uh, We don't need to see dolphins flipping and jumping through hoops and uh, and we don't need to see them enacting some kind of human behaviour either. And that's the same for seals and, like I said, for orca. There, there are no tanks big enough for these creatures. And, and I would be very open to any kind of discussion that anyone might have on that subject because it, it is something that I've been looking quite closely into and certainly after the uh, the slaughter in the uh, the Faroe Islands. Recently, where um, 1,400 dolphins were were slaughtered for what looks like just entertainment uh, for the Faroese. no one from the Faroe government has come forward to explain that particular situation. But again, this is what we—you know—these are things that we're doing to the ocean that would never be acceptable on land. You know, we've outlawed circuses, we've outlawed, you know, elephants and various other creatures you know lions you know the lion tamer is no more so why are we still allowing dolphinariums to continue
4: utterly last question from me how can we interact in a ecologically sensitive way with with the oceans with wildlife within the seas you've said we should get out of the pool and go into into wild water but be a little bit more specific how can the people who are listening to this podcast being recorded and the people listening to the podcast after it's been recorded how can they make a positive change for the oceans
6: oh right get get ready for a list <laughs> get your pens and papers ready i would say that uh, as consumers just give a little bit more thought about where you buy your products, how you're buying your products, how you're buying your food, how are you buying your seafood. Where was it caught? How was it caught? You know, there are a number of apps available now where you can check to see whether um, a certain fish is sustainable, and what sort of markers, what kind of stamps to look out for to, to, you know, on your packaging to make sure that that seafood has come from a reliable and sustainable source. I would say, look at your cosmetics, look at the ingredients, look at your supplements. Do they contain squalene or squalane? If they do, is that a vegetarian form of squalene? Because It could come from a shark liver. And most sharks are, you know, a lot of them are becoming endangered. Um, I think that the the statistics for for shark populations are shockingly low. We have a recent report that came out that said that of, I think, over 100 reef systems that were surveyed, 34% were considered to have shark species that were defunct, just dysfunctional. The sharks weren't able to do the jobs on those reefs that they are meant to do. So please look at your cosmetics, Uh, certainly uh, moisturisers and facial products like this, but also uh, your fish oils. Look at your clothes. Where Where was the leather sourced? Is it shark leather? Please say no. And say no to cruises you know these big liners that go through the ocean not just creating noise pollution but also burning fossil fuel and creating a lot of you know waste Uh, a lot of waste is thrown overboard in these in these cruises pet food be mindful of where things are sourced for your for your to feed your pets. a lot of the time bycatch is used to uh, bulk out certain certain cat foods dog foods and, you know, take the plastic issue seriously. Stop buying bottled water, bottled drinks. Keep keep cups everywhere. Keep your coffee cups in your car, next to your bed, at your desk. A spare, keep a spare one in your bag. A lot of places, a lot of restaurants and a lot of petrol stations even are now having uh, little water stations where you can go and fill up your water cup or bottle there. And I would say take nothing from nature. But if you visit a beach or a park, then try and take as much litter away with you as you can and and dispose of it appropriately. Don't take seashells off the shore. Just appreciate them. Take a picture of them. Share them on social media, but just don't take them off the beach. Yeah. And like I said, just get out of the pool and get into wild water. Stick your face into a whole new world and just discover the other side of life. But do it safely. Do it wearing reef-safe sunscreen. There are so many harmful chemicals in sunscreen right now that it's just killing off coral. So it's not just climate change and global warming that's killing coral. It's the chemicals that are coming off our bodies that are killing them as well.
4: Now is the time, good people, to please come up on stage and ask uh, Zakia a question of how we can help con- conserve this fragile planet of ours. But whilst you're all summoning up the courage to come up on stage, Zachia, you've managed to almost convince me in your rooms on Clubhouse that sharks are wonderful creatures, that they're cuddly, that they uh, that we 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 should not only conserve them, but literally we we should see them. As the kind of graceful creatures, and they're almost as cuddly as as panda bears, as as according to you. Surely they're just dead-eyed big fish that prey on us humans. Jaws was a documentary.
6: Oh well, now yeah, Jaws. There's so many things. There's so many problems with Jaws. First of all, it was based on a fictional book. The the guy who wrote it actually became uh, a spokesperson. For ocean conservation, for for shark conservation, and he he died fighting for sharks. So there's one thing, and I th- I think there is a quote from him saying that if he'd known the negative effect that his book would have had on on the shark population, that he would never have wrote it or never have written it. So it's really poor English, but yeah. So uh, sharks. Okay, let's look at the mo- let's look at the movie. So you see a shark, a great white shark stunning creature, absolutely stunning. It's nature's perfection. You know, um, sharks have been on the planet longer than trees, did you know? They've never, ever had human beings on their their menu. Shark, and actually most fish, I would say probably 99% of fish, and I'm just saving that 1% for the fish that I might not have heard of, they don't bear grudges. You know, if they don't like something, they're going to swim away. You know, the ocean is a big place. They can just swim away. Do sharks eat people? You know, this is the big problem. You know, um, we aren't their prey. And very often a shark attack is actually a shark mistake because when we're swimming above the water in our black wetsuits, you have to look from the shark's perspective. If they're going to to take a you know, a swim up, to their prey from underneath, they're just going to see a, a silhouette, and an outline, and very often we will look like seals, or we'll look like turtles, or, you know, like something different to them, and, and so they'll take a bite, and usually it's an exploratory bite, but we're soft-bodied, and so that one little explore, exploratory bite can actually be quite fatal. We aren't on the menu because we're not fatty, we're not blubbery, we're nothing but skin and bones and tendons. We have very little nutritional value for any shark, and they're, they're, we're just not on the menu. And there are many, many more species of shark than the great white. The great white has been hugely, you know, maligned by that that movie. But you know, we've got nurse sharks that are super, super cuddly. And obviously, when I say cuddly, you know, they're not like puppies. I wouldn't advise everyone to go out and just sort of of go and um, touch a shark. But, you know, approach them like you would any other wild animal. I've been in the water with lots of different species of shark, tiger sharks, lemon sharks, whale sharks, hammerheads, great hammerheads. And they've all been almost spiritual experiences because these, you see the sentience, you see the intelligence of these creatures as they're swimming by, you see the eyes flick up and down as they look at you. And they're not looking at you to size you up to say, mm, I wonder how tasty you're going to be. They're looking at you because they're as fascinated with you as you are with them. They are intelligent and they, they deserve a lot more than um, than that movie <laughs> allows them. I'll stop there because I really could go on, you know that.
7: Go to Bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's Bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST.
4: First person on stage. Now, I must admit, I don't quite know how to pronounce your name. Triare? Triar.
7: Hi there. Yeah, it's Triare. It's a very strange name. Don't worry about mispronunciation. Thanks for having me up here, Zachya and Rayfield. It's it's such a great conversation. I'm somebody who makes my living from the ocean. I'm a diver, photographer, videographer, but I also work as a commercial fisherman. So I'm a sustainable seafood advocate and a conservationist. And I am one of those people who thinks that fish are adorable. <laughs> so I I think that fish can be fuzzy and cute. Maybe not the fuzzy part, but scaly and cute. But I, I wanted to ask Zakia, you know, I see you everywhere, and I just wanted to ask you, how do you maintain your, your energy and your, your positivity? Um, one thing I really like about your approach in this area is you try to consider all angles, and you don't, you don't see things in black and white. You see the gray area in between. And that can be really exhausting being in that space. You know, it's vulnerable and uncertain. And I just wanted to know, how do you keep your spirits up?
6: Oh, Tiare, I love that question. Thank you. Gosh. And it's it's interesting that you asked that because I actually have had some time away from Clubhouse just because of that. I think I've just been so overwhelmed with the negative news and information that's coming from the world, you know, I, I work heavily, intensively with, you know, different social media channels and sometimes the information is just too much. And I I get overwhelmed. I, I, I'm one of those people. I'm sure that there are many people like, like me, but I will wake up in the middle of the night in a panic, in a sweat, you know, just because... Oh my god, the, the the weight of all the issues that we're dealing with as a as a as humanity just is just weighing it's just weighing so heavily on my mind, on my heart, on my conscience. And the only way that I can do something about that anxiety is to do something about it. And that's another reason why Mother Ocean Blue came about, because I feel that there is so much work to do for the ocean. And actually, the project has grown so much more than just being an education program. It's grown into business CSR. It's grown into, you know, what hopefully I'll be able to start a charity in a couple of years. But but that's all sort of, you know, it's, it's all in the mix at the moment. I'm, I'm waiting for various bits of a bit of bits of news, and I've got people, you know, who are who are helping me and assisting me with that whole process, so that I can get it as right as possible the first time round. Um, and so that that's my answer really is that I have to, I I do it because of my own to to, to relieve my own anxiety. Um, I feel that action is is the cure for my anxiety. And and to go to your point about you know trying to see you know the different perspectives, I I just truly do believe and i always have done i think that there's always two sides to a story and i don't think we can ever ever come up with a with a good solution a positive solution and, and a, a long-standing robust solution unless we understand everything and to come up with those robust solutions we need to ask some really awful questions and some really difficult questions but if we ask those questions and there has to be honesty in answering them, that that's how we're going to, to find the solutions that we need for the planet. You know, I'm not working for me. I'm not working. Uh, you know, this isn't an ego project. This is this is me trying to give humanity another hour, another day, another week on the planet. And I feel that if I can do that, then then I've, I've kind of done my job. You know, if I can leave that for, for my children and for, for that generation that, you know, all those kids who are uh, are marching up and down the streets, you know, screaming and shouting at us for answers, you know, if I can give them something positive, then that just helps to settle me somehow.
7: Thank you so much,
4: Akia. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and also thank you for uh, a great question. Uh, Natasha, you've got the last question of the evening. So make it an extra-bestly good one.
2: Great, thank you. It's not actually so much a question, I just wanted to throw it into the mix since we're talking about politics of the ocean and actually just what's the solution here, Zachia said. There's so many things that go into that and um we spend a lot of time talking together at the Blue Planet Club and I just kind of wanted to hear Zachia's take on that again because we talk a lot about kind of Understanding the ocean and the way to do that and then therefore protect it is by doing things such as mapping the ocean. And I think that ties in with a lot of these solutions, because one of the biggest problems is the human kind of intervention into the oceans and not just in terms of pollution, but even things such as illegal activities that occur just on top of the ocean things like drug trafficking piracy and that all ties in with monitoring the ocean so just making sure we're aware of what's going on on top of the ocean and within it and that comes down to things like acoustic monitoring and seafloor mapping so yeah i just i just wanted to add that in there and definitely his acoustics thoughts on that if not thank you
6: Hi. Yes, yeah, sorry, Natasha. Great question. And I'm really glad you brought this up, actually, because this does need to be discussed. But I, I don't know if anyone knows but or is aware of this, but most of the ocean is lawless. Um, there is no one country, no one body or governing body that looks after the ocean. And, and that's why where we have this lawlessness. We have this piracy. So many awful things that happen on the ocean just because it's it's a no man's land and that needs to be addressed. And I would like to see, you know, in the same way that we have prime ministers and governors and, you know, we have the UN and we have the European Commission. Why do we not have all the countries in the planet on the on this planet sort of chipping in to to some sort of ocean protection, some kind of ocean force, ocean nation, because we're really, we, we are, an, we're, we're a, an ocean planet, you know, the ocean covers 70% of the planet. So why are we not looking after it in that way, you know, in a, in a more of a governance sort of way? And it's it's important because, you know, we rely on the ocean for all sorts of things, for fuel, for for power, for food. And a lot of people, coastal communities rely on the ocean for, to, for, for their daily, you know, some sustenance they they rely on it to you know that people live on the ocean we need to look after all of it and it needs like I said it it just needs a huge overhaul it's shocking that that this isn't done already but most countries most coastal countries have an EEZ so that's an economic exclusion zone but usually it's only I think is it 30 miles or 30 kilometers and that's ludicrous surely it should be bigger than that so that that's something that I would like to see and then your, your other point about, you know, the scientists that, that work to, to either protect the ocean and protect marine life or to understand the ocean and understand more of the marine life and ocean currents and that sort of thing. This is another reason why the Mother Ocean Blue program has has grown because there are so many scientists who work just for the for the passion of it, for the commitment and their, you know, they've made the ocean and these Their their scientific discoveries are are their life's work. So why shouldn't they get paid for it? Why shouldn't they be remunerated for it? Why shouldn't they have, you know, a fair crack at some kind of uh, a wage, if you like? And so what I want to try and do with with the Mother Ocean Blue Ocean protection part of the program is to allow business huge businesses giving money, you know, CSR money, you know, corporate social responsibility funds to planting trees and to protecting forests and that sort of thing. You know, land to plant trees is finite. The ocean needs some help. So let's divert those funds, some of those funds. I'm not saying planting trees isn't important. What I'm saying is that there are some incredible grassroots initiatives that businesses can be a part of. And like I said, I'm I'm trying to build a way, an easy way, like a one-click way where people can, you know, businesses can get involved with coastal communities, you know, building villages, building infrastructure around these coastal communities. I mean, even, you know, the Indonesian Thresher Shark project, they they just need £10,000 a year to to run their program so that none of their fishermen take thresher sharks out of the ocean. Instead, they can fish for tuna and they just need that money to overhaul their boats, to to rebuild their their communities, to provide the, the right sort of training, to get the right equipment. And then all of a sudden we have a completely sustainable community working positively with the ocean. Why can't we do that? You know, it needs to happen, and I think these things can can more easily happen than we than we allow them to right now. So yeah, I'm excited for that to happen, and I and I think there there's some discussions that I need to have with you actually, Natasha, on that on that subject, as, as well as with the uh, with the programme, because it would great be great to have your input. I think we've talked about this before, but but yeah, it'd be great. Thank you so much.
2: Sure. I wouldn't mind adding just a little bit about some of the things that you raised, Field, in terms of the science aspect behind it. The main one is this kind of myth that a lot of people say about climate change, which is that because we've experienced extreme warming and cooling events, that we are kind of still within that threshold with climate change. And I just want to kind of clarify with a few numbers here that that historic or geologically historic climate change has been between three and eight degrees um, celsius so that happens on a scale roughly of a hundred thousand to two hundred thousand years you get these kind of interglacial periods which is the warming and the glacial the cooling periods but what we've actually done is we've accelerated the um, carbon emissions in the atmosphere on a scale that hasn't been seen before in over 55 million years so that's what's so interesting about kind of what we're doing at the moment it isn't really falling within the threshold of these cycles it's actually more that these cycles serve as a analog for kind of the fate that we will face regard is instead of kind of reference point that makes sense because i think a lot of times we use it as a reference to say that we're kind of okay still but actually it's more a guide to what the consequences will be instead
6: yeah, you know, Natasha, you're you know you're our scientists here. You're I know you know so much more about the ocean. You, you know, you're the one that's sort of not just mapping the seafloor, but you're really pushing yourself out there to find out this kind of information. You know, it's it's your kind of science that's really going to help push the boundaries. That actually, I think I feel that people have built around themselves to almost protect themselves from all the negative news. I think that's another reason why, you know, as a, the question from Tiare is that, you know, we need to not hide from the, from the bad news. We need to just ask it, ask those difficult questions, find out those difficult answers and, and, and find a way through. Absolutely.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And oh. I think you said funding is such a big part of that, which is why I'm excited to see Anne's up here because I always like hearing her perspective on that as well.
8: Right. I just very quickly wanted to say that based on some kid from Ghana I met a few years ago after an event to do with climate change, he was telling me what's happening to my beaches. I'm seeing these massive diggers uh, dredging up the oceans. And I was like, oh, I think I know what's going on. They're digging up the minerals and the metals and the resources. Yes, this is plastic pollution, but what are those resources being used for us? Do you I says, the conference we just came out of at SOAS University was talking about renewables as a solution. Put the two and two together. The minerals being dug up from the oceans, which are, I feel, probably an even bigger problem than the plastics because we're not even paying attention to the resources for wind, solar, and electric. My thinking is when a forest is deforested from a certain land, the temperature goes up um, because you haven't got that cooling think, from, from the trees and the nature, when we're removing green algae and the coral reefs are damaged and then we're mining up the minerals, then surely, in the same way it's happening on land, the same thing must be happening in the oceans. When people are saying about climate change is getting worse, the temperature is increasing in the oceans because we are mining these resources for giving us these supposedly green, clean. Net zero renewable products. And are we missing a beat here? Because I'm seeing all across India, all across the global south, there's massive mining happening. And when I draw the connection between the supply chain of what those minerals are dredged up from the oceans and specifically the renewables, then I'm shocked to see that it's exactly the same minerals. And while the plastic pollution is there, yes. But my, I just wanted to drop this in as a second noteworthy conversation that we should be possibly being paid attention to. That where are these resources being mined up? As an example, when you were saying Zaki about the, um, was it the something happened to whales or something for 15, 20 years? I remember the sonar waves from the military ships causing huge amounts of disruption to the brains of these animals. That's something that is very rarely spoken about. In terms of my main question is these resources being dug up hundreds of meters deep, kilometers wide, and it's all for giving us this clean net Azura. Um, how does that even make sense? Like, yeah, surely that should do you be. you know what? I'm I'm so glad.
6: Yeah, I'm so glad you Sorry. brought that up. Actually, no, that you're you're absolutely right. And I'm actually I'm looking at uh, a postcard that I've just received from the naval facilities engineering command northwest where i i think i'd written them a, a letter because they were threatening to do some some testing uh, a study area in in the ocean but they've decided to just go ahead with this decision to to test their sonar and you're right you know there's all sorts of things that we're doing to the ocean that are incredibly negative i mean we'd be here forever if we listed all the dis- the separate things but Definitely the, the sonar issue and the, the weapons testing that happens in the ocean is atrocious. I think, I don't know if Stephen is in the room, David might know something about it, but a couple of months ago, the, you know, a huge amount of wildlife started to wash up on the shore of, uh, you know, Florida on Miami beaches. And people were talking about it be- because of, a, you know, saying that it was an upswelling cold water. But actually, the military were testing you know bombs just offshore, so that might have actually had something to do with it and as for the the, the minerals you 're absolutely right, there is a lot of talk about deep sea mining, but there is also, I should say, on a positive note, you should know that, that there are people working on making those minerals, deep sea minerals, conflict minerals, so that they can't be touched. We have to leave them alone and, and they will be protected. And, we, you know, to protect the deep ocean, I think, Natasha, you and I have had this conversation before where um, we've talked about, you know, that there are certain mining companies who are talking about simply you know using this language of simply vacuuming up these nodules from the bottom of the sea well you say that you're simply vacuuming them up but actually what else are you taking you're taking from a place that we haven't even discovered yet so how can you do that safely and how can you promise and assure the rest of the world that you aren't doing more damage than you are trying to solve by pulling up these minerals to make batteries for cars. You know, absolutely, Segar, it's it's a a very valid
8: point. And for me, it really calls into question finding solutions for climate change and then we are somewhat blindsidedly pushing for renewables which rely on dredging up and ransacking and raping the oceans while at the same time bemoaning climate change. I mean does anyone not see the ludicrousy of this hypocrisy that we are saying climate change is happening, but we're causing it because we want to mine up and extract the oceans, and then the oceans are going to heat up because we've just taken away some of the main carbon neutralizing ingredients. But I, I, I really feel we need to have a really concerted conversation about renewables and are they really fit for purpose?
6: Absolutely agree with you. I think, Natasha, it. you're the you're the one to, to answer this question.
2: Absolutely. I'm, I mean, I've, I've liked everything you've said. And I think this is the huge issue at the moment when people talk about climate emissions. It's mainly based on atmospheric emission. So, again, this is kind of what Zakia was speaking to earlier about how do we understand and protect the oceans on kind of a universal solution. And, and again, it's to do with education and understanding and knowledge and also the right science because we don't yet know enough about the ocean to factor that in we should be measuring the carbon content of the ocean as well which is actually a lot of the work I do at the moment it's quantifying how much organic carbon we have on the seafloor, how much we have in the water column and then tracking those changes because there's lots of natural events that affect carbon in the oceans as well as climate change itself so even isolating those climate effects on the ocean carbon content is quite difficult. But that really does need to be added into climate emission targets. Because as you're seeing correctly, is that a lot of these kind of strategies that are going towards carbon neutral are basically pushing things into the ocean and, and, you know, kind of capitalizing on the vastness of the oceans by basically dumping and hiding things in there. Yes, you're absolutely correct. And as Zach, you mentioned, the International Seabed Authority, which is an offshoot of the UN, is in charge of all of, those, all of those deep sea mining efforts that you're talking about. They're in charge of the jurisdiction and also the legislature for that, legislation for that. And what's kind of a very shocking and worrying thing is that 50% of the world's oceans is under the jurisdiction of the International Seabed Authority. So they have immense power. And at the moment, they're kind of not really doing enough, to be honest, in my opinion, to stop people from having the right to mine the seafloor because the draft that they have to prevent that is taking far too long. It's still in a draft stage. So what that's actually meant is that organizations, specifically deep sea mining companies, can actually push for the right to mine because basically the draft hasn't been finalized soon enough so that's why there is that exposure right now and the ocean is exposed to exploitation because of that
8: natasha if i heard you correctly you said the seabed authority was a division of the united nations mm-hmm. um if that is the case and half of the seabed is managed by this authority yet you've got this wholesale ransacking of the oceans for our said resources by 50%, then does that not mean it calls into question more the United Nations? Because ultimate accountability has got to go with the mothership, and that's the UN. A lot of people have
2: said that, that I've spoken to. Unfortunately, it's a very grey area because they're classed as an autonomous international organization so they have affiliation and to be honest a lot of kind of people who collaborate with the isa the international seabed authority are un employees and people who are funded through that organization yet they do not have the responsibility so if you tweet the un and things like that or if If you try and go down that avenue, it doesn't really get you very far. And and it is really the international seabed authority that you need to deal with. So again, they really are kind of an organization unto themselves.
4: Anne Prasad, you haven't been able uh, to get a word in Hedgeway so far. And I'm really just want to get you in. Anne, why don't you go first?
1: Sure. Well, first off, I would just like to echo some comments earlier that part of why Sakya's rooms are so great is because she listens intently and brings in people with all types of points of view to try, because any of these issues that we bring up right now are so complex. There is no clear path and many solutions, right? Uh, Anything that you brought up, Sagar, about minerals, there's tons of technology and, and research and activities going on to actually even remove the need to have those have those metals and, uh, and elements in the battery systems and, you know, different types of technologies to get at the very heart so you don't have to do the deep sea mining. The other thing, though, that I really think about is sometimes when we look at the politics of ocean or just the problems in and around ocean is we all go to feeling like it's so vast and it's such doom and gloom that there's nothing that we can do. And I think whether it's art or politics or science or technology, sometimes it's it's looking at reframing the questions about not what's wrong, but what can be done, because that's what leads to people to think about sunscreen and the damage being done so can you make a better sunscreen okay well can you avoid sunscreens altogether okay you know you keep iterating and you keep moving towards solutions and that's what i think is so important that we all think about these days and i'm in and i'm complete thanks royfield for hosting this
4: room no worries prashad over to you sir
5: Thank you so much, Jackie and Raphael, Raphael, for hosting this room. A lot of learning and thinking about how we can show the best of humanity to the ocean citizens. They are suffering for decades, I believe, if not um, several decades, um, maybe up to um, from the beginning of uh, industrialization. Having said that, we have heard all these issues and how do we solve this problem is also a point, as we have discussed earlier. From my part, I'm a founding member uh, through my organization to an, to an association called uh, MISO-AM SDG-17 with the core focus on SDG-14, targeting the ocean care at large. So what we are trying to do as a group is to not only look into the microplastics issue but also on um, the other issues like oil spills which is at the higher level of the hierarchy from where these plastics are originating so uh, we hear the sad stories about ships breaking in the middle of the sea and you know damaging coral reefs and also mangroves so we sat on fixing these problems using organic enzymes and we take we're also taking all these issues to the world global citizens, I would say, so that we all can collectively uh, do something about it. And I am willing to support you guys, no matter what, uh, in terms of bringing out more information, data on where these things are happening, how they are happening, and how we could collectively fix these problems. And also target a mission called prevention at the point of source. So we can't afford all those things. I, I hope uh, I'm I'm not taking too much here but we all could collectively stop all this nonsense to show our best humanity to the ocean citizens again.
4: Thank you Prashad and uh, it's uh, time for me to say uh, Zakia Rashid uh, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and telling us just some of the few things that we can do to help conserve this wonderful resource which as you said covers some 70 percent of our planet and one of the things and you you said it right right towards the end there one of the things which i only learned today whilst doing my research for talking to you today is that 70 percent of the oceans as you said is lawless you know that you we can do whatever we want in so many uh, in, in so much of the ocean and, and that ne- needs to change because we are uh, destroying it there needs to be more governance and we need to conserve and replenish the biodiversity, which we are wreaking massive havoc with, with our consumerist lifestyle. So, Zakir Rashid, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic and thank you for being the first ecologist to come on to the show in seven years to tell us about this important um, issue. Don't forget, folks, what you can do um, if you are listening uh, to us in the audience. Hit little green um, house, become a member of the Mid-Atlantic Club, we don't just do US, UK, Canadian news. We kind of also now spread our kind of like tentacles to using a, a nautical metaphor around the world. And we do look at other issues outside of just uh, the North Atlantic. Generally, generally, we record these shows on a Thursday. But today, because Zakia is a special guest, or we decide to do this on a Monday. But it means that what you can do is be part of the club be alerted whenever we, we do go live and what we always try and do is get really passionate informed people about any kind of topic to talk and explain what is exactly that is going on with that with a specific issue around the globe. So that's the mid-Atlantic please join us. Please give um Zach here a follow. Um, her rooms are some of the best on Clubhouse. And I just love to go there just to just to listen and, and to learn. She, you You heard today she's an incredibly passionate and an eloquent speaker. you know if she wants to she, she's literally getting me wanting to cuddle a shark that that's how persuasive she can be.
6: It's going to happen, Royfield it's gonna
4: happen. <laughs> about ecology and the creatures in the great deep blue sea. but this is the podcast mid-Atlantic. We've been running for some seven years. What you can do. After you come out of this room, uh, go on to a podcatcher of your choice. Go and subscribe to the podcast. Please go listen to it. And then why don't you dip your toe into some of the seven years worth of podcasts, which we have actually done all about, whether it's Brexit, whether it's to do with the election of Trump or, or whatever. We, we, we all have it. And even the Canadian election, where we had Canadian MPs actually on the show. So that's Mid-Atlantic. Please join us and always sign off by saying this. Look after yourselves, but look after your loved ones even better. Left to centre politics is right-thinking politics. Don't forget that. But we embrace the politics of our right-leaning brethren and sistren because we don't demonise. There you go. That's us. Thank you for joining us on Mid-Atlantic. Take care. Look after yourselves. Bye-bye.
7: Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much.